Hello, and welcome back to Writer's Book Club Season 3. I'm so thrilled to be bringing you another series of deep dive writing chats with some brilliant Australian authors across different genres in 2023. For those of you who are new to the podcast, I'm your host, Michelle Barraclough, and each month I take a deep dive with an author into the writing craft and process behind one of their books. I have known today's guests for almost 20 years. When I was a new mother, a friend, another Rachel, pointed me in the direction of Rachel Mogan McIntosh's blog, which is called Mogantosh. And at the time I had a blog as well, who didn't really. And Rachel and I used to leave comments on each other's blogs. This was in the Jurassic period before social media and blogs were sort of like the Instagram of the internet in the early 2000s. From there, I've watched her career take off, resulting in the release of her wonderful memoir, Pardon My French, last month. In this chat, we discuss everything from how you protect your friends and family from your writerly tendency to mine their lives for material, how to structure a memoir in terms of narrative and character arcs, how to hone your own voice on the page, the importance of adding specific detail to create authenticity and avoid cliche, and how to balance your penchant for absurdity and humour with pathos and vulnerability. Notice how I incorporated a French word there. You probably couldn't tell because of my horrible pronunciation, but I was saying penchant with a French accent and completely stuffing it up, of course. So what is Pardon My French about? Let me read the blurb. At the school gate, when she accidentally kissed one new friend on the nose and called another a beautiful man-horse, Rachel realised that small-town France could hardly be more different to beachside Australia. The smell of cigarettes replaced the tang of bone broth and sprouted sourdough. The neighbours sometimes came to blows, and under no circumstances would anyone wear active wear in public. Ever. Muddling through every interaction in terrible French pushed Rachel's family to their limits. Some days, everybody cried and ate their feelings with almond croissants. But the town of Sommier embraced these ragtag Australians and the family fell in love with their temporary hometown and its outrageous gossip, cobblestoned beauty and kind, eccentric inhabitants. Pardon My French is a candid, hilarious love letter to family life in France with three valuable lessons for overcoming adversity. Make a home a beautiful nest, lean into the tough lessons and look for the comedy in everything. Doesn't that sound great? It is great. You need to read it. So before we dive into the interview, let me tell you about Rachel Morgan McIntosh. She is a mum of three, a crisis counsellor with Lifeline, and a community trainer from the south coast of New South Wales. Her writing has appeared all over the place in publications across Australia, France, and the USA. Rachel loves books, baths, coffee, podcasts, TV, and Terry's chocolate orange, consuming them simultaneously whenever possible. Pardon My French is her first book, but I am absolutely certain it won't be her last. I know you're going to love this deep dive into memoir with the brilliant Rachel Morgan McIntosh. Rachel Morgan McIntosh, welcome to Writer's Book Club podcast, and thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Mish. I am so delighted to be here. It feels weird being so formal with you in that introduction because, listeners, Rachel and I have known each other for nearly 20 years and she's been making me laugh for that long with her writing. We used to read and comment on each other's blogs back in the Neanderthal age before Instagram. And 
Can I just say there's a really special kind of joy reserved for old friends whose publication dreams come true. Congratulations on this exceptionally gorgeous memoir, Rach. I've been raving about it to everyone who'll listen. Well, look, I appreciate that even more coming from somebody who's probably heard me repeat my own gags a number of times over the years. They never get old. (laughs) So how has the foray into publishing been so far for you? We didn't talk about this as a question, but I think it's really useful for other writers to know that first time feeling and how how it feels and you know, are you sick of the sound of your own voice yet? All that publicity, intense publicity periods just coming to an end, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And yes, I am so sick of the sound of my own voice. <laughs> I'm sure everybody else out there must be as well. No, not a chance. <laughs> um, I always, well, I recorded the audiobook for for this as well. And I always have as this sort of a strike of horror into my heart when friends tell me they're listening to the audiobooks. I just think, oh God, like eight hours of my voice in your ear. You're never going to want to see me in real life again. <laughs> just be too much. They would feel like it's just spending eight hours with their old mate listening to your voice. It would be a warm hug for them, I'm sure. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> oh, was it you who had Sam Neill next door to you in the booth when you I were did. recording? Yeah, I did. That felt, that was such a moment of, of yeah, in the whole kind of publication and and launch process to be recording in the same studio as Sam Neill and sitting around and having a chat with him in reception about uh, our experiences of reading our audio books like colleagues. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like the writing colleagues you are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was a great moment. Yeah. That really felt like, oh my God, wow, this is quite wild. And he's really hot in real life, I have to say. He's he's got the Kavorka as uh, Kramer would say. <laughs> the Kavorka. Yeah. I know, that smile, right? That shy sort of handsome knowing. He's sort of just shabby and, uh, you know, like understated and goofy and, yeah. he was In a really, hot way. In a hot way. Hot, hot grandpa. <laughs> hot grandpa, it's a thing. <laughs> I want to dive straight into what drove the decision for you to write this memoir and did you know you were going to be writing about this year and therefore kind of make conscious notes of you as you were going? I did make conscious notes the whole year that we were there. I was writing, I was deep in the process of writing this other book called Mothering Heights, which is almost a character through, pardon my French, the the, the process of writing that book and finishing that draft when I was over there. And I always sort of looked at that manuscript as the manuscript where where I sort of taught myself how to write a book. I sort of taught myself how to sit with that blithering inadequacy and all of the kind of <laughs> anguish of having, you know, the sunk cost of this massive pile of of words on a page that I didn't know if I would ever be able to sell. I didn't know if anybody would ever want to read it. Had no idea if it was any good. And mostly I had I had real suspicion that I would never be able to to finish it just to kind of land the plane. And so when I did finish that first draft of Mothering Heights, that kind of gave me the confidence to know that I had it in me to finish this other manuscript as well. And I always felt like the, the that year in France had the capacity to be a book because I loved that genre myself. I love those kind of stories. And so I always had that uh, kind of second 
script running in the back of my head around keeping notes of these moments and these ideas. And because I was deep in the kind of process of trying to frame this other whole memoir, I also, I guess, had this second script running in my head around the threads of narrative that would form around, pardon my French as well. When I did the giveaway for pardon my French, uh, one of our writer mates, Cassie Hamer, she came in, she goes, oh my God, I love a French holiday memoir. And I'm, and quite a few people then said it. And I was like, that is a thing. It really is a thing. Like people, it's yeah. almost an auto buy for people when they see a French, French yeah. holiday or French, you know, a year in France yes. getaway or Italy slash Greece slash wherever they go yes. in Europe. Yeah. So, you know. Well, the part well, that made me slightly nervous about it all is that I love that genre as well, but it tends to be a really aspirational sort of a genre. It's much more like a year in Paris or a year in Provence, which is about kind of embedding in a certain glamour and a certain luxuriousness of of living. And that was very much not what our story was. It was much more about this kind of gritty stumbling and fumbling our way through trying to be good parents and trying to manage this difficult life without a lot of money and with certainly without doing any kind of fancy things. And so there was this sense of like, oh God, does is anybody going to want to read this kind of, you know, I don't know, de-aspirational memoir of just a bunch of dickheads in France kind of <laughs> making, you know, making mistakes and but then, you know, I would think, well, I would want to read it, you know. Yeah. I would want to read a story that, you know, dug into somebody's real experiences, even if they weren't very glamorous. So I just hoped that it would find a little hole in that genre. I think it would find a big audience because it would be all women our age who read A Year in Provence and Under the Tuscan Sun and all of those yeah. in our 20s when we felt aspirational. Yeah. And now we do want to read about the real grit of, you know, what's it actually like? living yeah. in those places with kids and a husband and no money yeah. and yeah exactly yeah it's, it is something about the age as well it's that lowering of tolerance for bullshit you know yeah and you don't sort of want to be sold a fantasy of things because you're just like I don't need you to pander to me yeah. <laughs> like, I just I'm much more interested in the gritty reality of of how things are yeah we've all had those thoughts and you actually went and did it so of course we want to read about it the other thing you mentioned there was the writing of Mothering Heights. I loved those little sections right throughout the whole memoir about mm -hmm. your writing process. And in some ways, I wasn't expecting that to be such an integral part. You know, this it's almost mm -hmm. like a writing book as well. Yeah. And I think we can all relate to that, you know, trying to find the headspace, trying to find the physical space, trying to find some peace and quiet, trying to quieten down and that monkey brain, as you call it, and just sit with your work and mm -hmm. and force your way, you know, the bum glue. Yeah. And having to do that in a strange country mm. in weird bars with with names like Bad Fonzie walking past threatening you. I mean, <laughs> the laundromat, the whole laundromat scene. Oh. Bad Fonzie didn't threaten me. He threatened my friend Elizabeth. He tried to right. he had sex with somebody in front of On me. In the laundry, or almost right. near yes. Congress, I think it's described in the book. Yeah, in the laundromat. Yeah. <laughs> I would have found that a bit threatening. To uh, yes. Yeah. He he was a threatening guy. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think that you and I'll probably jump back and forth over a number of different things yeah. while we're talking. But in a sense, like that was another whole narrative arc of the book. The 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 writing was this arc that was around my own private 
wrestlings that were separate from me as a mum and as a parent and as a wife, you know, kind of holding emotional space of the family and everything that was going on. That stuff about me finding places to write in town and wrestling with my capacity to finish this book was very private and very individual. And then the stuff about Bad Fonzie was this other whole narrative arc of the book that was the character of the town itself of Sommier. And the longer that we stayed there, the more, you know, I think of it as bad Sommier, that that theme, the theme of bad Sommier, where over time the the town itself became more layered and we realised the kind of wild violence and, you know, intensity and roughness that it had, which weirdly was part of what we loved about this town. But as we embedded more and more deeply, these things just became more and more normal and that progresses throughout the, the book. Yeah, because while it's a beautiful-looking, historical, medieval French town in the yep. south of France. It's a working-class yes. village. Yeah, very much so. It's, you know, sort of an hour distant from Nîmes and from Montpellier, the two bigger towns on either side. It's got a very kind of like fabulous and storied market that's been running for a thousand years. So, the bourgeoisie and the fancy tourists would come on Saturdays for the market and any in the summertime as well to things that were happening. But most of the time, and definitely through the winter, um, those people weren't around and it was just kind of a more of a hard scrabble, you know, set of uh, people living in the village that were all our friends and and neighbours. Yeah, yeah. So, Rach, with a memoir, this is the question people always want to know. There's a husband and three children in this memoir and coincidentally, you have a husband and three children. How do you go? <laughs> lucky, very That's lucky. Very, that. that was yeah. very lucky. How do you go about writing about friends and family? Was there a lot of discussion and compromise and what did you put in place to protect the innocent? Yeah. Oh, look, it is a really tricky one. I've always written about the family and about the kids. And I've always used, you know, pseudonyms for them. And I've always kind of tried to take the approach of a light touch and a lot of comedy around how I've described them and dealt with them in their early life and their babyhood and everything. So, the kids have always loved that aspect of things, those stories that are just these funny stories about them as people they almost don't recognise, you know, their younger selves. But it it was different having this long form piece of work that was very candid and dug really deeply into some of the struggles that we had. So, there was a sense where it was easier to write about the children in that way than it was to write about Keith. So, the kids were still, you know, under 11 at that time and there was this certain kind of possessiveness that I felt around their experience in the sense that I just knew every detail of their everyday lives so well that I could make a certain set of assumptions about their interior lives, assumptions that I wouldn't make now that they're teenagers because I would really understand that that, that I wouldn't, not just that I wouldn't have that right, but that I wouldn't get it right. So, with the kids, it was this matter of sort of trying to juggle the authenticity of capturing what was difficult about that year. So, it was still, you know, this true narrative, but without breaching their confidentiality or where they were comfortable. And that was complicated as well because I've got one child in particular who's very introverted and hates attention. So, that's complicated. And then the Keith stuff is complicated because this overarching narrative is my changes and what what was happening internally for me. And then 
the story of how the family changed and our parenting, and that's easy to write from a shared perspective because Keith and I share that that perspective, luckily. But I I can't write from Keith's own interior life that what what was happening, what was shifting and changing over time for him. I don't have the right to kind of publicly explore that. It's complicated. And yet we do get insights into that from there is a, a moment where you and Keith have this real come to Jesus yeah. discussion, don't you? And, <laughs> and just from his dialogue, because uh, you do write beautiful, authentic dialogue that you get a sense definitely of where Keith's frustrations and where his head is at. So that I thought that was done really well, actually. Oh, look, I really appreciate that because that was gruelling to write that chapter. That was really difficult. And Keith and I went back and forth a few times over that chapter because, you know, it is a story of Keith's life. It is very candid, this, you know, this long chapter about a pretty intense kind of foundation argument, I think I call it, after (laughs) we'd first moved in. And, you know, he didn't choose to have all this stuff out in the world. Keith is much more poised and dignified as a person than I am. But he's, you know, cursed with a writer for a wife. And so, this back and forth of trying to capture the truth of that argument without crossing Keith's boundaries of what he knows his family and his colleagues are going to read while still having it be, you know, funny and while it still serves the story of where we were and is still true. Yeah. <laughs> that was tricky. So it was it was a really positive thing for Keith and I in the end to to get there, to have to work through this stuff. It was not easy. But in the end, yeah, I think we really did understand each other better and come to a, a good place, even though it was it was hard to to find this line where we both felt that that we were both happy. Just talking to Keith at the launch. God, he's a delightful man. Oh, he's he is. Gorgeous. Oh. <laughs> I've met him in real life before, but I feel like I knew him from all yes. our years of going backwards and forwards. Yeah. And he was the same. He's like, I feel like I know you. And he just didn't stop smiling for the whole night and his pride was palpable. Like he was so proud of you and oh, said so. so lovely. Yeah. And so, yeah, I feel like you've worked that one out and done pretty well there, right? <laughs> We're fine. We're fine. I feel like he approves. <laughs> the memoir is bookended by leaving home in Australia and returning home, which provides a sort of a natural starting and finishing points for the memoir. But how did you go about structuring the rest of the book? Were you conscious of needing some kind of narrative or or character arcs throughout, or did that sort of emerge just from the chronology of of writing the memoir anyway? Yeah, there's a certain kind of natural framing of that chronology, which was really nice and tidy that year long. But there was definitely a, a conscious sense of world building within that, where I really over time. I mean, this might come out more in the, we talk more about editing later, but it just makes me think of this wonderful writing teacher called Nadine Davidoff, who once taught me about the idea of editing in tracks and trying to think of some singular aspect of what you were trying to to do or to get across from beginning to end of the book. And so, there were different times where I, that really was a powerful way that I was thinking about the book, editing in the track of comedy. You know, it's the book got enough funny moments all the way through and the light and shade of that that track of Sommier and bad Sommier and the deepening of our connection to place in the book, the track of imagery and 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 the 
the sensory kind of power of the book and just making sure that those sections had a certain weight to them. Then, you know, that track of taking things to, it always makes me think of Charlotte Wood, that idea of the sentence level, trying to just take it back to that track of making the sentences as beautiful as I could make them. So, the chronology was set around the year and then the this way that I kind of invented for myself around what I would find satisfying, what I wanted the reader to find satisfying in the book were these different kind of tracks that I would keep in mind, trying to see that it met those all the way through. And right. then the characters, of course. Yeah. So, a comedy track where you're scanning the memoir for, for is there enough comedy? And then a- yep. A sentence track are the sentences well structured and beautiful and yep. do all the things they're meant to be doing. Oh my gosh, that's, yep. I love that concept. And how does that practically look? Is that just literally going through the manuscript again and again? Yeah, sometimes literally it would be like this thinking of scanning through and and going through and just looking, you know, chapter by chapter around these sections that were descriptive or, you know, sections where I really wanted to outline this place. like, And they would sort of get refined over time. It was kind of this beast of a manuscript that just got pruned and tamed over time. So, that aspect of Somia, for instance, there was just, it was a much more, I guess, conscious in an in earlier sort of drafts or earlier process, places in the process of, I think there were four separate walks through um, you know, Rukanat, the street, and on those four walks were these deepening aspects of, of, of who everybody was and what the place looked like and trying to capture this deepening aspect of what I would notice as I understood more about the place and, and how that would kind of convey to the reader that we were just dropping deeper and deeper into this world. And then further down the track, that would sort of get a bit more, you know, absorbed into the more general kind of narrative and not be so specifically those signposts almost of those four different seasons or something. But definitely there were times when things were constructed much more easily, I guess, and then I tried to just make it a bit more smooth. Yeah. So you always had the chronology really as the framework to kind of fall back on. Yeah. And I mean, when we're talking note keeping notes, are we talking physical notebooks? Did you sit down every day and just write? So Scrivener. Did it all in Scrivener, actually, when you were in France. Yeah, huge, messy Scrivener document. So there was a big Scrivener, Mothering Heights, that was, you know, much further along the line at that point where I was, I was, you know, at the point of really kind of completing this first draft, which is generally how I work, like all of that first draft will be in Scrivener and then it'll just all get kind of sent over to Word and then I'll start refining it in Word and it'll have much more that shape of a book with the chapters. But in Scrivener, there's a lot more of um, moving things around and reformatting things. And so there'll be a lot more in, in Scrivener, there'll be a lot more of, uh, you know, the seasons of things and where things are really split into quite a structured, you know, timeline of how I want things to shift and change over time and all of that stuff starts disappearing once it's incorporated into the actual text and then once it's in Word, it's just all, hopefully, all of those, you know, all of that kind of overriding is absorbed into the… Yeah, the scaffolding has been taken the away. The scaffolding, sort of yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you literally had Scrivener open 
most days in France while you were there and you were yep. making notes directly into Scrivener. Yeah. Oh, and also crazy. a lot of notes on my phone, which my phone was just like a little camera and a notes app really because we didn't have Wi-Fi outside the house. So I, because I spent sort of, I spent seven years writing this column and that is I think really, really where I developed this this second sort of voice inside my head that was always going, is is this a thing? You know, <laughs> is, this, <laughs> is this something? And usually when something was really bad or upsetting or stressful, is there something in that? You know? <laughs> and so there was always that sense of like, it's like the Nora Ephron, everything is copy. It's it's really fantastic actually just for life. thing that's going on that is tough or grueling, I'm always writing about it somewhere in my private mess of notes and it's like I'm, I sort of try and turn it into something that that I can understand and that has meaning and and often it pops out somewhere in some writing along the line but yeah. so that stuff was always happening with my France notes. So it's something that you will have initially a, an emotional response to it whether it be if sort of like this scares me or this is confronting or this is yep. Uh, this conflict of like the school gate in France, yep. that was quite confronting yep. for you, wasn't it? And feeling yep. like you didn't know what you were doing. But do you also sometimes then go, well, that's just a funny moment. Is that enough to have just a funny moment or yep. would, would they get written down as well? Or did they have to have some kind of an emotional punch for you? Yeah. I mean, I think that they just they tie together so yeah. much because you Definitely. find the humor in everything. You you seem to not not in everything. I do but try you do, to. You do yeah. try to. Yeah, bring that light and shade. I love that. Well, I think it's like if you are attuned to that somehow, the absurdity yeah. of life, you do see it everywhere. Mm. You see it everywhere. Mm. I, I was at a swim yesterday, a sunrise swim with all the women from, you know, where we live and one of our friends is going through something really devastating and difficult. And so we've met the last couple of weekends to have this sunrise swim and to just try and be together to to talk about them and to help them. And so we decided that we would sort of sit and meditate in a little circle and we so we were doing that and then one of my friend's dogs kind of backed up to our other friend Sarah's face and just slowly sent her backwards and then sat on her face <laughs> and then Sarah said so that was funny that was already funny and that because Sarah's tiny and the dog was huge and it took a while to get the dog off and then Sarah said I had this weird sex dream the other night that a great Dane tried to mount my face <laughs> and then we realized that Sarah had somehow manifested this moment with the other dog and that was all, you know, within the context of this sunrise and the the tears and the deep grief and worry that we mm -hmm. felt. At the same time, somebody's dog is humping some middle-aged woman. Mm, like face. it's all tied <laughs> together, you know, always. Oh, always. I love that. And we are going to talk a little bit more about that sort of light and shade. And the funny thing is that Sarah is the same friend. We joke that she's my muse, one of my neighbours. She has turned up in my writing for 15 years because <laughs> half the things that happen that are really ridiculous, they always have Sarah in them. Wow, what would you do without Sarah? I know. Everything would just be half as funny. <laughs> well, life would be half as funny without without all our Sarahs, wouldn't it? Oh, it really would be. So mm. with Scrivener, sorry to keep going back onto it, but I'm sort of fascinated 
I know from a novel writing perspective, people lay out on the left-hand side, they've got their chapters or their scenes, and then they write the novel in the the body, and then they might have the right-hand side for notes. Did you sort of each day go, right, new section, or was it just kind of a rolling thing? Like, how did you categorise everything on that left-hand side? I I think, isn't that the classic thing with Scrivener, that that everybody uses it differently and nobody knows more than 10% of how it works. Nobody knows more than 10%. I know. So basically, yeah, it's just this, uh, where Scrivener is like massively useful to me is just that long left-hand new document, new document, new document. Because that's sort of at the heart of all of my writing always is this kind of marinating pull in the back of your mind of where these connections are, where things thread together with other things. And that, you know, most pleasing part for me is where it it kind of swims its way to the top and something becomes clear. This is this is where the the root of that is, or this is where these things meet. And so it starts as this massive mess. And then as you prune and tidy it up, these connections and these threads are able to be more and more, you know, pleasingly kind of sewn together throughout this document. That's the hope and that's the aim. And for me, it's this idea of like, I really want a reader to feel really satisfied by the book, like really like, oh, you know, I've connected to this person and then I've I've ended in this place with them that's made me feel good or that's made me understand them more or that this question that I had has been answered along the line, that that sort of aspect of things. And so when I'm able to to thread those connections together, that feels like success to me in terms of a, a big project like a book. Mm-hmm. So that long, you know, string of things at the side, I will just keep adding things to as I think of other, you know, it might be like, you know, dog memories question mark and then it'll be like maybe the dogs talk to each other through some telepathy and maybe that'll never become a thing again and it's cleaning up point I just send that to the trash but maybe other dogs come into it at some point and then I start adding to that section and then at some point I go I can see how I can thread this dog storyline through (laughs) (laughs) but that Scrivener allows you to sort of have that yeah. messy mind map going on at the side. Yeah. Do you use that, those right-hand windows as well just for making those connections oh, I find or those them notes? annoying. They're annoying, so we just get rid of those? Okay. Yeah, I find, <laughs> Yeah, I can't sort of – I can't get rid of them. I've tried to sort of move that away, <laughs> but I can't quite get rid of those. Somebody who knows about the other 10% that we don't know about, exactly. please write into Rachel and tell her how to get rid of those two right-hand windows. That would um, be so useful. That actually. would be so useful. <laughs> They can get in the bin. Rach, I've been reading your writing, as I said, for nearly 20 years, and you have such a distinctive voice that comes across on the page. Do you ever need to find your way into your voice, in inverted commas, or does it just emerge naturally on the page? Oh, I will write, you know, like um, 100 words of crap for five good words. Like there's a lot of that. There's a lot of like sort of just sitting with stupidity until you can kind of carve out something that makes you sound smart. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I think that 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 voice in my writing, I kind of honed that style probably back in my column writing days where I was always having to tell a whole story in 
bring the pieces together in, you know, 800 words. And I just, over time, that became a skill that I learned how to to do better and better. But it's that tricky thing, I think, isn't it, where you you can see when something's bad, but you can't always see how to make it better. So sometimes there'll be something that I'll read back and I'll be like, I can't really happy with that. I captured that or that sentence is lovely or that that story still makes me laugh or whatever. But a lot of the time it's like, you know, when I'm looking at something, it's like this is really crap and moronic and I just can't quite work out how to get there. And it's just, it is just the bum glue that you mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier. It is just sitting with it, tinkering with it, you know, something goes to 3,000 words and then back to 1,000 and then up again. It's kind of killing your darlings and trying to you know that it's it's just sitting and wrestling with it until eventually something emerges yeah do you ever feel like you're too close to it and you can't you know how George Saunders talks about that needle on his forehead like this is yep. crap yep. and the needle swings across oh this is now yep. I've got it this yep. is gold yeah 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 I'm a moron I'm a genius I'm a moron, I'm a moron. I'm a genius. <laughs> uh yeah. yeah I definitely do I think that there's a such beauty to letting things marinate and letting them sit and then coming back to things. Often that is the key to having the perspective that you need, especially when you are writing memoir because you are wrestling with your own ideas about a thing. And sometimes, you know, you figure those out on the page, but sometimes you talk yourself into something that isn't even real, you know, or you find yourself in some place and you're like, I don't know if I even think this. So it can, especially when you're in the middle of the experience that you're trying to write about and you just don't have the distance. So yeah, just writing and writing and writing through it and then trying to find time to marinate and come back to it would probably help with that. Speaking of voice, do you read memoir widely? Is this something that? Yeah. Yeah. And and so when mm. you do, mm. are you a mirrorer? Like, are you one of those people that can't read while they're writing because you find that the other person's voice is coming into your writing? Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't think so. I read, like, I read all the time. I read fiction. I read non-fiction. non-fiction yeah. I read everything. Yeah. So I think I just absorb a lot of stuff all the time. So I don't I don't think I've ever really wrestled with that thought, oh, I'm reading a lot of Sidaris and now all my writing is, you know, has that uh, problem. What a great problem to have. <laughs> I don't think I've ever looked at my work and gone, God, this is too much like David Sidaris. <laughs> there is far too much jaded New Yorker in this. <laughs> but I do I definitely take on take on stuff that I'm reading like I I do I read with that slightly critical eye switched on as well where mm. I am slightly thinking about or critiquing the sentences and what's happening in yeah. in in the work and I think all of that sort of just will then come back to how how I'm critiquing my own work yeah are there any memoirs that you sort of looked to to go wow how I wonder how they did the sort of the pacing or the narrative arc or were, yeah. were, were there any inspo memoirs oh look there's there is so much inspo I, not necessarily around yeah things like the pacing or the the arc but they would be things like you know I would think about Sidaris in terms of almost like thinking about Helen Garner in terms of the the spareness of 
of the prose and that that beautifully kind of measured um, way of 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 outlining some searing sentence, you know, um, and would think about that in terms of trying to rein in my tendency to kind of waffle or get a bit flowery or whatever. I'd think about like. Augustine Burroughs in terms of being brave and just trying to really searingly dig into the self. Jeanette McCurdy, I'm glad my mother died. I, oh, yes. I really loved recently where, yeah, again, she just is able to kind of do this thing where you are in the self, you know, describing the self, but with some objective eye from the outside as well, where you're able to to you're just able to almost have the reader's perspective, hopefully, for them to to see the stuff that you can't see. I'm not sort of describing that really. Yeah, I know you well. are. I, I completely understand what you're saying. There's some great recommendations in there too for people that want to read a bit more widely. Now, Rach, one of the things you do so well in Pardon My French is bring us into your world and really make us feel like we're a part of it. And I think one of the ways you do this is with all those tiny details that make us feel that we're right there with you, you know, the funny nicknames for things and the people and the descriptions and the settings. It's this idea, speaking of George Saunders, he calls it specificity, you know, tell us how important is that detail, that specificity in your writing and how you wove those details into the memoir. And I'd love if we could read something from the book. Okay demonstrate so yeah i i love specificity uh, again like the george saunders quote that you're talking about it's probably like the highest value techniques for me in writing that kind of granular detail i love it i love to read it in in somebody else and so i definitely really try to lean towards that in 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 my writing so yeah to to the extent where I sometimes think I'm not sure other people would want to read this stuff, like where I'm t- describing, for instance, where we're packing up the house to go home and there's this long chapter that's full of and then this object and then this object and then this object and over and over because to me it was like that was as I dismantled our whole lives, everything was contained within those objects. And so the almost kind of just listing of them all was this tying a bow in that whole experience. That was sort of my intention, but yeah, it, it, it is just this long list of, of <laughs> things that I think somebody might be just like, what the fuck? Like, just <laughs> stop, you know, stop reading us out your to-do list. No, that for me, I was there with you. I love that level of detail. I think it really, it brings, it brings you into the story. It also is extremely effective against cliché. Yeah, because, I hope so too. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's all, it's so specific. Yeah, yeah. It's so specific. Yeah. So the more specific you are, the less likely you are to be describing things that are in somebody Some else. Universal thing. Yeah. yeah. In terms of those details, uh, I have got a couple of little, just mm. short little things for you that I thought might capture that. And one of them was about Mabel's obsession at this time with all things medical. So in the book, Mabel is six and she yeah, she just loves blood and medicine and gore. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, this quite early on in the book. So, for her fifth birthday last year, Mabel asked for a wheelchair, a set of crutches and a medical boot. I found a secondhand chair, bedazzled it a little, tied a bow around it and rested the crutches jauntily beside. 
When Mabel saw her gift on the morning of her birthday, she screamed like we had presented her with the Hope Diamond. Before going to sleep at night, especially if Mabel's feeling a little frazzled, we discuss what she calls her secret dream. I'm in hospital, Mama, Mabel says, excited. And then what? You're going to have surgery tomorrow, I say. Ten operations, Mabel says. No, twelve. Go on. Yes, twelve, I say in my most soothing tones. I go deep Mullumbimby hypnotherapist. You have a broken leg and your liver needs resecting and your spleen has been lacerated very badly. And I have diabetes, Mabel adds. For some reason, she's very taken with diabetes. Eyes closed, Mabel drops happily into sleep. So it's like the the details of the specifics of what she was like at six, which she really, really was. But I hope also like as a way of kind of illuminating that relationship that we had and the kind of absurdity of of how you find ways to comfort your children. Yeah. Yeah, and speaking of tying a bow on things, I love when you come home at the end and she goes, my wheelchair, <laughs> but where are the crutches? <laughs> well, yes, and then also uh, I try to comfort her when we're home and she says, I don't want to talk about hospital anymore. Like mm. She mm. hasn't. She's, she's over that. that and we have to find a new one because I can't describe Whipple procedures anymore <laughs> to put her to sleep. Yeah. I think that's absolutely gorgeous. So the other one I had was about one of our friends in France, just to give you a more Frenchy little moment of that world. So this is this chapter where we're going to a whole series of parties at friends' houses. Kat's small apartment off Rue Flamande explodes with the debris of three children, toys, electronics and clothes. We cluster on two overstuffed couches while Kat serves wine and a plate of savoury hot cheese puffs. Jacques, her husband, is a tall, bald man with a single large hoop earring. He speaks no English at all, but a couple of wines in, he becomes loquacious and babbles intensely at me, giggling. I nod and say, wee, wee, hoping that I'm not agreeing to a wife swap or a far-right immigration policy or to babysit the children while he and Kat go to a wealth-building seminar in Portugal. The children gather around a giant screen in the corner to play Fortnite. Again, the noise and graphics of the game dominates the small room, and then 15-year-old Etienne starts streaming French hip-hop at high volume through his phone. Preteen Celine smells the cork of the wine bottle and nods. Jacques and Kat just raise their voices over the din. Jacques and I are discussing the upcoming Christmas holiday, I think. Je suis excité, I tell him. He nearly spits out his cheese stick, and Kat explains through her guffaws that I'm telling him, I'm so horny. My heart sinks. Not only have I complicated my already incomprehensible relationship with my friend's husband, I'm excited is one of my stock phrases. I dread to think how often and to whom I've said it. That's one of my favourite phrases. That's also something that pops up through the book is these phrases that you keep getting wrong. So bad. Oh, so good though. So bad, but so good. I love that level of detail. Yeah. Well, that was some of the stuff that I really loved and I love trying to capture it, the the interiors of people's yes. houses, you know, that sort of stuff, which was so different to home. Yeah, yeah. I love that. How do you say it? Je suis, je suis excité. Je suis excité. Yeah. And just the way you're saying that, Rachel, is just like <laughs> you clearly. And there's a great section in the book, actually. This was the one I think I texted you about when I read it because I just, I was drinking a cup of tea when I read it and I literally just snorted it out oh that's, so that's said, my favorite praise at the school gate 
once I accidentally kiss another mum tenderly on the nose, mm. this is less embarrassing than the incident months later when I'm told that the phrase I use constantly, I'm so excited, actually means I'm so aroused. I imagine a text going around, beware the horny Australian lady, she's into noses. <laughs> yeah, so that that foreshadowing is of that exact scene that I just read. Yeah, oh, exactly. God. So good. I love it. And also, people... Like an excellent lesson for anyone going to France. Don't say je suis excité because you don't yeah. want to be telling people you're horny unless you really are. And then by all means, use it as much as you like. Yes. No judgment here, especially not from the horny Australian woman who's into noses. <laughs> Rach, we talk about compelling writing in fiction and nonfiction as containing light and shade. And I think that's something you do so beautifully in, pardon my French, interweaving these moments of absolute absurdity with heartbreaking vulnerability in both yourself and Keith and the children and this sort of the darker side of life in this working class French village. How do you manage the balance? It is something that I I thought consciously about because, yeah, it is a comedy. It's definitely a comedy, I'd like to think, the book, but it it's the same as Mothering Heights, you know. It's basically a comedy, but it, it has this kind of heart of darkness as well. Sometimes I think about it as like, you know, you want to get the reader laughing and then kick them in the throat, <laughs> which is kind of evil really. But And you kick them in the throat first and then make them laugh. Maybe That's probably nicer. nicer? That's a kinder way to approach it maybe. And then tell them you're horny. Yes. To yes. round it off. That's right. And then, yeah, people never invite you to coffee again. Yeah, I... I'm really happy that you experienced the book that way because that is, you know, my great hope that people would enjoy the light and the darkness and that they, that they would be connected to both parts of it. Yeah, so that makes me really happy. Yeah. Do you, is there a bit that you could read that demonstrates? I can definitely read a bit that talks a little bit about the challenges or of the challenges that we faced, which is in a section called The Centre Will Hold. Yes. It's more about Keith and I. I think of Keith and me and what now feels like the distant past, sharing with each other all those articles and ideas about the impact of living overseas on the creative brain of children so ignorant of how life would truly unfold. Cognitive flexibility. I breathed into his ear all those months ago. Depth and integration of thought, he moaned. Neural pathways, neural pathways, we cried together before settling back to light a smug cigarillo. I wonder, has it been a positive experience for Biggles to spend half his school year asleep on his desk? Certainly watching him circle the pole did not make us think he was thriving. What about Tabitha and her friendship struggles? Her ability to manage the schoolyard bully in a second language was remarkable, but at what cost? As for Mabel, so small, would her nascent brain have fared better with the safety and security of a known universe, as opposed to the forced new sh- shoots of growth she developed when thrust into such an unfamiliar environment? Keith and I have always comforted ourselves with the idea that this gamble will fall overall on the positive side of the scales, but perhaps the experience is lodging itself in a different place, a place of confusion and anxiety, where the sand is shaky beneath a child's feet. The thing about best guess parenting is that there is no clear answer. One aspect of life is sacrificed for another. One child's need weighed against the others. All this work of fiction, really, a pointless shield against the inevitable pain of life faced by each child differently. My miserable time spent running away from my chronic pain saw me circle and return to myself in this wild little town, surrounded by friends with a drink in my hand. Would I have found the pleasure without the struggle? 
would I have planted my feet in it with such gratitude? Is that shadow self, the flaw, the crack, perhaps the most important mechanism? I don't know what meaning this year will hold for the children. Ultimately, it will be up to them to tell us, hopefully not across a family therapy couch with an earnest woman in statement jewellery. Oh, Rachel, that is just a perfect example of what we've just been talking about. <laughs> laugh, cry, laugh. Perfect. Thank you. And also, listeners, that just gives you a perfect example of the beautiful, beautiful writing that this woman is capable of. You're not just about the laughs, Rach. You're a damn just fine writer woman. <laughs> Thanks, Mish. Am I allowed to ask, with the benefit of hindsight, yeah. has it fallen on the positive side for the children? Well, so still, like, that's, I think, up to them to to tell us. You know. Certainly, Tabitha in the book, which isn't her real name, she, you know, is dying to go back to Sommier to to see people again and just to be back in that world, even though it, there were so many challenges in there, there for her. Yeah, it is. I mean, it definitely fell on the positive side for all of us as a family. It was the most beautiful bonding family adventure. It was just an incredible time that we all spent together. And all of the children would definitely, all three of them say that they're glad that they had so many good times all together. Yeah. But I think that we always knew that there was this aspect of it that was going to be really hard and really challenging. And that was kind of baked into why we wanted to go as well, that that the the very idea was rooted in this year that Keith spent in Paris when he was nine, which wasn't an easy year. There was a lot of really tough things that happened in the family that year. But the 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 overarching memory of that experience for Keith was just so rich and and kind of unique and and had this outsized importance in his brain that we always felt like the tough parts are going to hold a lot of gifts for the children in terms of compassion and understanding what it is to be an outsider and learning how to, to rally and and deal with tough things. They always felt like they they were important challenges as well. Yeah, the resilience. And they'll probably process things differently. As you say, they were all 11 and under. And Tabitha is now, what, 16? 16. She's a teenager. So she's mm -hmm. probably is starting to think about where she wants to go in the world and 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 she's processing things more as an, yep. with an adult brain now. Mm. So- of course, as they get older and older, like Keith, you know, he yep. as an as an adult man with three children is looked yep. back at that time when he was nine and gone. Sure, it was tough, but on balance, yes, I'm going to put my kids through on that. On balance, too. I, do, I I do. It's only fair to do it to somebody. It's else. Only fair to inflict <laughs> this on my own kids, but no, it's the life cycle of the bully. I think, Mish. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's giving your children this fruitful, wonderful experience that they'll that's uh, right. Then yeah. be able to share with their own children someday. That's lovely. So we have talked a little bit about your personal editing process for the memoir. Mm. Tell us about getting picked up and then how that whole editing process worked with the publisher. So I came home with this first draft of Mothering Heights and just this I had no idea what what to do with it. I had no idea where you would even start from there looking for a publisher or or anything like that. And then 
uh, somehow across my desk came this program called Hard Copy, which was, it's sadly being rested at the moment. It hasn't run Aww. for a couple of years, but it's the most fantastic program through the Canberra, the ACT Writers' Centre. And it was a manuscript development program where they would take, I think, 40, 40 manuscripts every year. And over the course of uh, a year, or maybe it was six months, you went for these three weekends down in Canberra. And the first two were very much about, you know, process and um, the craft of writing. That's where I spent two days listening to Nadine Davidoff, who I mentioned oh, earlier, mentioned yep. yeah, talk about writing. And I just, it was this otherworldly thing for me because she's just the most brilliant writing teacher. And the way she just described how to sort of, you know, strip your manuscript back and 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 recraft it or to recarve it was uh, just brilliant. And then you would go away and rewrite. And, and we had small groups that we would also share work with on the way. And then you'd come back for the second weekend with, you know, a new manuscript. And then basically the last section of that program was where they would kind of uh, – cut down the numbers to I think there was a dozen of us at the end and that dozen we went to this, you know, terribly like so stressful couple of days where you were in front of agents and publishers and like a speed dating thing. They had all read maybe 20 pages of our manuscripts and one by one we went in and all of us were just in pieces. It was so gruelling. But that's where I met my agent. Jane Novak, who's really wonderful. And she 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 said, I really love this and let's try and see if we can sell this book. And so then Jane and I were working together on Mothering Heights for just a lot of ages. Like I sort of rewrote for her and that sort of bounced around. And while Jane was sort of trying to sell Mothering Heights, I was writing Pardon My French. And so when and then right through lockdown and stuff. And then when I finished Pardon My French, and I think we were sitting on Mothering Heights at that stage for a little while because maybe there was somebody else that was that Jane was going to send it to sort of coming up, but it hadn't found a home anywhere. And then Jane read Pardon My French and she was like, okay, this is great. And she sold Pardon My French really fast. And that was when I started with a firm who are a Melbourne publisher. And yeah, they've just been fantastic. I've had such a great experience working with them. And that was, they basically picked up part of my French and then it was a year until the publication date. So over that next year, there was, I think, yeah, just a few edits back and forth with my editor, Armel. And it was a great experience. What sort of things was she picking up? So she was really great. So she, basically they... They were fantastic around, pardon my French. They were like, this is really clean. This is really finished. This doesn't need a whole, you know, forensic restructuring. But they could just see a lot of stuff outside of my bubble that I couldn't see that was confusing or that wasn't tight. And uh, Mel, like, mostly uh, Mel would sort of catch me making my gags, <laughs> saying, making the same joke twice and stuff like that. So, that was always really funny. So, it was it was really amazing for me. I've definitely heard people talk about finding that really confronting or really difficult, having an outside person kind of red penning your, your manuscript. But for me, I just had spent so long in my little goblin mode working on this book to have somebody from the outside who who you know held the emotional kind of vulnerability of that so beautifully in terms of just I love this book I love this voice I don't want to change anything about it I'm here to support you I'm not here to 
to make you do anything that you're not comfortable with. It was a very safe space to be in. And so I I really loved it. I really had a great experience editing. Yeah. Oh, that sounds like a wonderful experience. But And as you say, it was a fairly clean manuscript and that's no doubt due to all those years you spent writing a column in a very similar style. So yeah. you, you know what you're doing. But- yeah, and also just trying to get it as tight as I could get it before yeah. sending it anywhere. So yeah. that thing about where there was stuff in it that was still bad but – I tried to see where most of it was. So, yeah, it was as good as I could get it at that point. I'm sure that's in all of our future. When we get older, our kids will be going, Mum, you need to pull back on that gag. You've told it 40 times to the same audience. Yeah, and you're the only one laughing, Mum. Yeah. You're the only one laughing at your joke. (laughs) Can you you not tell the joke about when you said I'm horny to all the French people at the school gate? Can you stop telling that story, Mum? I feel like it's getting a bit old. Yes, it's so true. <laughs> Rachel will never get old to me. Keep telling that to me and I'll keep laughing at it until we're old and grey, well, my dear. I, I appreciate your support. I've got a couple of questions from listeners. So Amara McKee, who is a beautiful long-term supporter of the podcast, thank you, Amara, she would love to know how much embellishment goes on when writing a memoir. Did Rachel tweak anything to make things more interesting or dramatic? Was that even necessary, Rach? <laughs> no, I think the answer actually to that is it, it wasn't necessary. And I think also because I was I was really deep in this process of, of taking notes and of writing stuff down as it was happening constantly that I had too much material. So it's more like rather than embellishment, there's heaps of stuff that's not in the book because like sometimes just because of space and because there's already a lot of characters for people to keep track of. So there were whole, you know, important people in my life that had to just not make it into the book because it was too unwieldy already. But there was absolutely stuff that happened with our friends and within the family that is not in there, even though it would have served the story so well and been either really funny or really meaningful or, you know, really have that pathos. But it just breached a line of of a story that was okay to tell. And that's kind okay. of the – that is the difficulty of memoir. That's why I do long to write fiction because of the freedom of being able to tell a full a fuller story yeah. so that, you know, the more, the more important – metric or or yeah what's most important is that everybody that's in my life that I care about isn't hurt by my writing so the writing suffers at times because of that because it has to yeah yeah but it will end up in your fiction anyway okay yeah just change change (laughs) never fear people just yeah yeah, don't look too closely the second question is from my darling writer mate Penelope Janu who's oh my god she must be seven or eight books into her writing career she's so accomplished but she's always learning and that's one of the things I love about her she studied a semester of non-narrative fiction before finally working out that powerful non-fiction requires not only well put together sentences but characters plot narrative drive etc basically everything that good fiction requires now she knows why some non-fiction work speaks to her so profoundly her question is, what components of fiction writing are crucial to powerful memoir writing? Yeah. Look, it's such a good question. I'm, I am trying to write fiction now and it's like a completely different beast. I feel like I'm sort of 
starting from the ground up trying to teach myself how to to do this stuff but there there are so many similarities i think in terms of the the fiction that i'm trying to write at the moment i you know i keep keeping in mind that notion uh making things worse and then make it worse for that person as a as like a general rule of how to progress the story along and that other idea of that you just want the story to be a series of and then what happened and then what happened and then what happened the page you know, turner just a page turner just wanting your reader to get their hooks into the story and just be like ah oh, i stayed up an hour past when i wanted to or whatever because i just wanted to know what happened next so i guess that's pace in a way you're wanting to kind of make sure that 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 pace is embedded in there that the world building that the world that you've built that your reader is kind of invested in that world and feels it almost tangibly to smell it and to to see it and then like fiction you know the heart of fiction is the characters that at the heart of it all is these people that hopefully you care about and you want to to know what happens and you want them to have some sort of uh, a resolution or a, or a lesson or to come to some place at the end that is satisfying so the sort of strangeness of memoir I guess is that you're talking about real people in a real story and and real things that actually did happen, but you're almost, you know, repackaging it all within this structure that meets our ideas of a good story. Yeah. Are you finding it easy or difficult when it comes to fictional characters or are you drawing upon real life people to build those characters in your mind? They're not really real life people. It's sort of like this novel that I'm writing it's just like a really really complicated plot line basically that I am just jumping all over the place I had written quite a lot of it and then ditched it all and that was this realization that I had with writing fiction was just like that I know some people can can do this can just start writing and then have the sentences and the voice be be clear enough yeah. from the beginning, but I just couldn't. And I just, anything that I'd wrestled with around a sentence, it was all gone because that person didn't exist anymore or it all changed. And so I'm sort of at this point of this really kind of complicated structure of this story. And I'm trying to kind of work my way through that and get all these threads in there. So, the, yeah, these three main characters in it are, yeah, they are quite complex and they have a lot of different touches of different people, but I don't I don't know where they're going to go or yeah. if it will ever see the light of day. Like it's <laughs> so bad. <laughs> Stop it. At this point it's it so bad. bad, but I'm just like, that's fine. Maybe this is going to take me five years, but I'm, I'm just in it and I'm yeah. just going to chip away at how terrible this is to see if maybe it's there's something to it later. There'll be gold in there. How's that um, Scrivener document looking? <laughs> it's looking messy. <laughs> I guess the other thing that you would take from your memoir writing or your nonfiction writing is this yep. idea of specificity as well, because bringing mm. that into fiction is also really important, isn't it? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's like at the heart of the characters, isn't it? Which is at the heart of the, the book. Yeah, so yeah. trying to just which is that is really fun at the moment doing that character building around these characters in in the novel making them really interesting in that way is 
great. Yeah, I'm really enjoying that. Yeah, oh, that's great. And tell us about Mothering Heights. Is something happening with that now? Has it come out of the virtual Scrivener drawer? It's out of the drawer. It's it's like in process. I'm sort okay. of not at a point where I can announce anything yeah. exciting. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, yeah, it's definitely looking like Mothering Heights is going to see its form as an actual book-shaped object, which is Super exciting and also kind of weird because that process of editing, yeah, I haven't looked at this for two years. So that's going to be really interesting. And I guess also because the other manuscript that I'm working on at the moment is the third basically in this trilogy. So Mothering Heights is I'm 40. It's very much about a pregnancy and childbirth and that stay-at-home mum years and the particular madness of that world. And then the other book that I'm working on is like menopause, adolescence, elderly parents, you know, that whole time of life. So that's like a massive mess of notes, that document that I'm kind of working through when I'm in it. But hopefully that book, which is called Big Bird at the moment, is is kind of the final bookend of this trilogy and then I'll never write memoir ever again <laughs> is the plan. Until you became old yourself. It's funny, isn't it? Because we're right in that stage now where you're writing this third book. Is Mm. there enough distance, Rach? No, there's not. (laughs) That's why it's um, it's really, yeah, it is really interesting. There's not enough distance, but it's all happening in this time. It's like there's a lot of intensity around the general machinations of my life at this time and the lives of all my friends. So there's a lot of notes. There's a lot of half-written essays. There's a lot in that Scrivener document. And so, I'm trying to kind of contain that to these like early mornings where that's the time where I kind of work on that stuff and do a bit of shaping and try and think through what's happening in my mind and then try and carve out time more in the day for the other project. But I think it's a couple of years until this one will be, I'll have enough distance yeah, when we stop becoming a hot mess and you can make sense of the hot mess in Scrivener. Yep, that's the aim. God. <laughs> oh, please let the menopause end soon. On that note, <laughs> Rachel, it is so lovely to chat with you. I've been so looking forward to this. And thank you for being the first guest on the 2023 reboot of Writers Book Club podcast. I could not think of a better way to start the year. Thank you. I'm so honoured to be your first guest. And, yeah, it's been absolutely brilliant chatting with you. We've both been uh, wanting to do it for so long. So it's crazy that we're here, actually. But, yeah, I've loved it. Thanks, Mish. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Rachel. Reading out excerpts like that to illustrate the various craft aspects of writing is exactly what this podcast is about. So it was just so fabulous to get those insights from Rachel today. And so many of the things that she spoke about apply to fiction as well. You know, finding your voice, getting the structure right, editing. In fact, most of it can be applied to fiction, really. So I'm, I'm glad that Penelope Janu asked that question. So look, do make sure you grab a copy of Pardon My French, not only because it's just a brilliant read, but so you can also get the most out of this episode and really absorb firsthand what we're talking about. If you head to the show notes on the website at writersbookclubpodcast.com, you'll see links to Pardon My French and to all the places you can find and connect with Rachel. And I urge you to do so because she's just great. I'd also like to say a huge thank you to Penelope Janu and Amara McKee for sending in your excellent questions. 
Penelope and Amara are both writers as well. So you'll find links to them in the show notes and you should check out their websites and their writing as well. I really love getting your questions and the authors I have on love them too. So keep sending them in each month so that I can insert them into the interview. It's a great way to tap into some seriously good writing intel and just connect with these amazing authors. I also want to say a massive thanks to KK Fams who left me the most beautiful review on Apple podcast. They said, I listen to a lot of podcasts on writing, but this is the one that is the most thought provoking, stimulating and practical of them all. Isn't that lovely? Thank you so much, KK fans. If you fancy leaving a review as nice as that for the podcast, I'd be so thrilled. And apparently it helps push the podcast up the rankings and into other people's ears. And you never know, maybe there's a writer out there who is about to write a memoir and could really do with listening to an episode like this one with Rachel. Speaking of writers, who is up next? It is the fabulous Amanda Hampson. She's going to be taking us through the writing of her seventh novel, The Tea Ladies, which is coming out on the 12th of April with Penguin. But I, of course, have an early copy to give away. So make sure you check out the giveaway post on my Instagram or Facebook. Now, I'm a massive Amanda Hampson fan. She's one of those incredibly accomplished writers and just a safe pair of hands. You know that when you pick up one of her books, it's going to be fantastic. She just immediately transports you into the world of the novel And the Tea Ladies is no different. It's fantastic. You're going to love this book. Here's the blurb. A wickedly witty, cosy crime set in Sydney in the swinging 60s, ideal for fans of Richard Osman and Bonnie Garmus. They keep everyone's secrets until there's a murder. Sydney, 1965. After a chance encounter with a stranger, tea ladies Hazel, Betty and Irene become accidental sleuths, stumbling into a world of ruthless crooks and racketeers in search of a young woman believed to be in danger. In the meantime, Hazel's job at Empire Fashionwear is in jeopardy. The firm has turned out the same frocks and blouses for the past 20 years, and when the mini skirt bursts onto the scene, it rocks the rag trade to its foundations. War breaks out between departments and it falls to Hazel, the quiet diplomat, to broker peace and save the firm. When there's a murder in the building, the tea ladies draw on their wider network and put themselves in danger as they piece together clues that connect the murder to a nearby arson and a kidnapping. But if there's one thing tea ladies can handle, it's hot water. Can I also just say, the blurb doesn't mention this, but Hazel herself has a beautiful story as well. I I loved her as a character. Joanna Nell said of the book, The Tea Ladies is a total joy. With her ear for dialogue and eye for authentic detail, Amanda Hampson has created a refreshing take on the murder mystery that is both wickedly funny and highly entertaining. So there's an endorsement for you. I polished off this book in a couple of days and it's a real masterclass in character in particular. So I'm really looking forward to talking to Amanda about her writing process. Okay, the entries for the giveaway will close on April the 12th. But of course, if you're listening to this podcast in the future, there's a new giveaway every single month. So make sure you follow the podcast on Instagram or Facebook, and then you'll always be in the know. And of course, from April 12th, you can pick up a copy of The Tea Ladies wherever you buy your books. And I'll make sure I pop a link to the pre-orders in the show notes. Okay, writers, that is it for this month. 
you'll find all the show notes for the episode right here in your podcast app or on the website at writersbookclubpodcast.com. And I'd love to connect with you on socials as well. So jump in and let's have a chat about what you're reading and what you've got out of these episodes um, for your own writing. I'd love to hear from you. As always, I recorded today's episode on the beautiful unceded lands of the Garigal people of the Eora Nation, where I am lucky enough to live and work. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next month. Until then, happy writing. Happy writing.